All right, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> As was mentioned, we're in uh, Romans 9 today, so if you'd turn there in your Bibles. Let's jump right into it. Verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Father, we come to you this morning, and we are thankful to you, Lord, for your word, for your nature, for who you are. Lord, that you see the end from the beginning, and that you know, Lord, all of our ways. That you've called us, that you've chosen us from the foundation of the world, that we've belonged to you. And Lord, we are so thankful to be a part of your mission, your plan, Lord, here on earth. And as we study, Lord, you and study your word this morning, we pray that we'd be more fascinated in awe of and um, in a sense, Lord, that we'd be overwhelmed by who you are. We pray for that, Lord. We ask that you do it in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for this truth. Thank you, Father, for your word. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think Romans 9, kind of turning to this little section of Scripture, Romans 9, 10, and 11, where basically we're going to look at Israel in the past. What about Israel and God's plan for Israel in the past. What happened to Israel, basically? You know, we, we are here as the church. We read the Old Testament. We're reading about the nation of Israel. What happened to them spiritually? And then uh, Romans 10, uh, what, where are they now and where are they going? Romans 11, what is God's plan for the nation of Israel? Uh, Israel in the past and present and in the future. But in coming to Romans chapter 9, I just have to chuckle as a verse-by-verse uh, Bible teacher, because, and the reason for it's really simple. There's going to be some doctrines and some things, some passages, some verses here that are hard for us to understand in our own human intellect and mind, which I think is probably the case like every week when we study God's Word. But in Romans 9, that's highlighted, I think, to a greater degree. But that's not the reason that I chuckle. The reason that I chuckle is because I just know that if I weren't teaching verse by verse through God's word. If I weren't doing that, I probably wouldn't in my own human intellect from my own vantage point think that th- these are the things that I should choose to preach about and to talk about and to teach about. But, be- but God is way smarter than me. He's way smarter than you. He knows what we need to hear. He knows what we need to receive. So as we go through it verse by verse, we're learning things from the Lord and about the Lord that uh, maybe uh, we wouldn't might we might not we wouldn't might uh, that we wouldn't naturally I'm hedging all my bets here but uh, that we wouldn't naturally uh, turn to but that are nonetheless so powerful for us to understand I think really here especially in Romans nine of Romans nine ten and eleven we get to learn a lot uh, about the Lord and about God now. Some, when they turn to Romans 9, 10, and 11, and like I said, we're going to look at Israel past and present and future, uh, some almost teach it as if 
there's no connection to anything Paul has already said. And when we finished Romans chapter 8 a few weeks ago, you guys know, I told you, that's kind of a close of a section. Paul sang this incredible song at the end of Romans chapter 8 where he's celebrating the security of the believer. Kind of the central theme of that song is what can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, So the question is, is Paul now, here in Romans 9, is he just kind of finished with that part of the book of Romans and really kind of finished with that thought, and now he has like a brand new little letter to write? Is this just a parenthesis where he's going to kind of pick up his big thought in Romans 12, and this is just a little like moment that he's going to talk about Israel? Or is this has this flowed from everything that he's already said? And I, and I really believe that Paul is writing this, and it's flowing from where he's previously gone. And I, I read the first five verses to you in part to show you that Paul, when he thinks about the nation of Israel, he thinks about so many of the blessings that they had as a people. They had the covenants. They had the glory. They had the promises. They had the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They have the Messiah. And he mentions all of these things. And really, to me, at least in my ears, it sounds like an Old Testament-like version of what we sang at the end of Romans chapter 8. In other words, in Romans 6, 7, and 8, we're celebrating the incredible blessings that we have as the church And in Romans 9, he begins singing about the great blessings that Israel had as God's people. I think that what Paul's doing is he's saying, look, you might have a question. You're singing about all this security. You're singing about this big plan of God working in a human life. And that when you give your life to Christ and you become a believer, you are completely, fully, all the way, totally his. And maybe you might be sitting there asking the question like, well, that sounds good. But isn't that kind of what happened to Israel? Didn't they receive these great promises from God? And what happened to them? Because it seems that at the very least, God has hit the pause button on his plan for them and now is dealing with the church, the Gentile church. So what does that mean for you uh, and for me? So that's what we're going to look at here in Romans 9 and 10 and 11. The questions that we're going to look at here in this chapter are, Pretty simple. Has God's promise to Israel failed? Has God's word failed? We're also going to ask the question, is God unjust? We're going to ask the question, if, why does God blame us if he shows mercy to whomever he wills? And then we're lastly going to ask, what should we conclude uh, from these things? So you can see uh, these questions center around the nature and the character of who God is. But before we get there, notice in the first three verses to introduce this subject, and we already read it, but Paul points out a specific attitude within his own heart. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother's my kinsman according to the flesh. He's talking about Jewish people because he himself was of Jewish descent. And so he's saying, in terms that would make it clear that he's not messing around, he says, I 
am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness that I could wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of the people of Israel. Have you ever said such a thing? I mean, that is some powerful devotion and some powerful love, don't you think? He looks upon the people of Israel and he says, I wish I could be cut off for them. I wish that I could be accursed so that they might have life. That's pretty radical, don't you think? I asked you if you've ever thought that, and it's okay, you can just say no. You guys were like, I'm not going to answer. But it's okay, you can just say no. I've never thought this. I mean, this is powerful, incredible love that Paul has for the people of Israel. The question I think that we could ask here is, how did Paul get to this place? How did he get to the place where he had that level of compassion for a people group? I don't think it was because he looked in his heritage and he said, it's my heritage. I love that heritage. I think it's because as the years went by and as he studied and thought of the gospel, the love of Jesus, the closer he got to the fire of Christ, the more that that flame jumped out and changed him. It changed his soul. Paul is the one who wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and you guys know this is a really big kind of life verse for me, but he said there that as we behold as, as in a glass or in a mirror dimly the glory of the Lord, as we, as we spend time with the Lord, and I think for, for us that means as we're interacting with the message of the gospel and who Jesus is and his powerful love for us, he says as you do that, you are being transformed into the very same image from glory to glory, by the Spirit of the Lord. And that had happened so thoroughly, apparently, in Paul's heart that the love that Jesus had, the willingness of Christ to become accursed for people, to be cut off so that we could have life, that willingness of Jesus had begun to enter into Paul. Not that Paul thought that he could, you know, die on the cross for anybody's sins. He knew that that wasn't the case. But that level of sacrificial, even substitutionary kind of love, it had entered into Paul's heart and entered into Paul's life because he had hung out with and spent time with the Lord. And so if you need to increase in uh, your love, you can try to do that by telling yourself, be loving, be loving, be loving, be loving, be loving, be loving, be loving. And, you know, good luck with that method. Or... You can spend time more and more feasting on the Lord and learning about him and his radical love. And the more that you do uh, as a believer, the more, more the Holy Spirit begins to transform you into having that kind of love. And Paul, Paul had that. Now here, when he lists all these blessings from Israel, we, of course, remember that this is not the first time that Paul has spoken about the nation of Israel in his letter. And by the way, I think that in general revelation, uh, the, the actual presence of the nation of Israel is a, a nice clue for the world to uh, a clue as to the veracity of the, of the scriptures. Because you have here a nation that people have been trying to annihilate and wipe out forever, yet still exists. Very small but still exists. And so there, it, it, I think it should cause people to at the very least say, now what is going on here 
And what is this Bible all about that is talking, at least in the you know, first half of it for the most part, and then obviously in the New Testament as well, but it's talking about this nation. So there's a great evidence there. But as Paul does this, we know this isn't the first time that he's talked about the nation of Israel. In fact, in his theme statement, what did Paul say back in Romans chapter 1? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul is kind of coming back to that thought and like, okay, to the Jew first, tell me about that, Paul. What does that mean? Where are you going? What are you, what are you saying? What happened and what will happen to the nation of Israel? The question that someone might ask at this point after reading verse 4 and 5, especially how they have God's name, they're Israelites, that they had God's adoption and the glory of God and the tabernacle, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises that God gave them, the patriarchs, and uh, even the Messiah. As God gave them all of that, the question is, did the word of God fail? Has God's promise to Israel failed? And Paul, through the whole section here, is going to answer that question. But his first response in verse 6 is, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's word has not failed. God's word has not failed. Now where he's going to take us at the end of Romans 9 and then on into Romans 10 is he's going to say, what happened was you had Israel, receivers of the promise, and then you had some in physical Israel who began to think, we can get the righteousness of God by our works. They stumbled over the message of grace and faith. And because they couldn't receive that message but thought that there were works that could be kept to attain to God's righteousness, uh, it wasn't that God's word failed, it's that they did not receive that promise. And so Paul will be bringing us and them in Romans 10 back to faith, simple faith. And the word of faith being spoken from our mouths, trusting, simple belief, receiving, like they did initially, the great promises of God. But Paul here says in verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For, verse 6, listen to this, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He says an astounding thing there, where he's saying, look, when you look at the nation of Israel, you have physical descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but not all who physically are descendants are actually governed by God, are actually God's people, are actually children of the promise. Paul had already referenced this idea in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. He said, no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. So apparently, according to Paul, his teaching, the New Testament, what you have is the reality of a physical Israel, but also a spiritual Israel, those who believe. You have those who have the genealogy, and then you have those who have the genealogy plus faith. Paul would say it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. Listen to this. He says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
So it appears from what Paul is saying here in verse 6 that there is such a thing as physical Israel, and he's going to talk about them in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And then there's also spiritual Israel, of whom apparently even we as believers are a part. Then he says in verse 7, he says, And not all are children of Abraham because they are Abraham's offspring. All right, now that's an interesting thing. That's a, that's a, a kind of a shocking statement. Not everyone who is the offspring, he says, of Abraham, are actually Abraham's children. He quotes from the Old Testament, from Genesis, in saying in verse 7, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. Here, Paul goes to the Old Testament and he illustrates God's choice and the, that there are those who are of the flesh and those of the promise, those who are physically uh, descendants of Abraham and those who are spiritually uh, children of the promise by pointing out the story of Isaac and Ishmael. You might remember this story. God had told Abraham that he would have a child who would uh, come from him, who would inherit his promises that God had made to him. After years had gone by, Abraham had no children. And so Sarah, his wife, she came to him and she did something that no wife in this culture or generation would suggest, but was a little more culturally acceptable in their time. And she said, take my servant, Hagar, have a relationship sexually with her, impregnate her, and have a child with her. And her son will be considered our son. And so Abraham went along with that suggestion, they had a child, a son named Ishmael. And Ishmael grew, and eventually God said, I'm not going to receive Ishmael. You and Sarah will actually have a child. Now, this was very hard for them to believe. In fact, when God said it to them, Sarah laughed uh, because she had a hard time believing the promise of God. That's why his name, that's why the child that they had, they named him Isaac. His name means laughter. So, uh, the story of Isaac and Ishmael help us a lot of times to remember what it's like when we take matters into our own hands. We're so often tempted to work things out ourselves rather than trust in God, to believe in God that he is able to do that which we cannot do in our own strength, our own power, and in our own might. But here, Paul points out that story to say, remember Ishmael? Remember Isaac? God chose Isaac. And he did not choose Ishmael. Then God goes on in verse 10 and says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children. Now, Rebekah was the eventual wife of the Isaac I just talked about. She says, When she had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, and this is from Malachi, Jacob I love, this is the voice of God, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now when we read that, uh, we immediately are like, what? That's God, he said that? <laughs> and he did. Paul is quoting it. 
some of us kind of wish, like, Paul, like, there were other quotations you could have used. Why that one? Uh, But God spoke this in the book of Malachi. Of course, without, before we even look at what God was trying to teach us here, we just have a huge question about God even using language like that. Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I've hated. What does that actually mean for us? There are those who think that all Paul, all that God was talking about was in relationship to the covenant decision. Jacob, I've chosen. Esau, I've not chosen. And that is the emphasis that Paul is trying to use here. But still, that word is a strong word. What does that mean? There is the idea throughout the Bible of this word, that word hatred, meaning to love less. Jesus actually used this concept himself. He was talking to us about discipleship, what it means to follow after him. And Jesus said this in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, none of us takes that concept and thinks, you know what the Lord's telling me to do? He's telling me to be the worst son and brother and uh, friend and father I could ever be. He's telling me to, to treat the people in my life with such extreme hate. That's what he wants me to do. No, we would just look at the life of the person who actually spoke those words. We would look initially at just the life of Jesus and see the way that he treated his own family, the way he treated his own mother, the care that he expressed for her. Uh, We would see the way that he called and forgave his own brothers eventually. And so we understand just from looking at his own life that for him, the hatred that he's speaking of there in Luke 14, 26 of father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. It doesn't look like a be a jerk to these people. What it seems like he's saying is in contrast to the extreme devotion that you have to God, it's like the comparison is love versus hate. Your first priority is so extremely God. And that could be the case with what God is saying here about Jacob and Esau. Because when you look at the life of Esau in the Old Testament, it's not that God looked at Jacob and said, here's a life of blessing, I'm going to take care of you. And Esau, I'm just going to give him the worst existence in history. That's not at all what occurred. Esau lived a fairly prominent and blessed life. In some respects, more physically blessed than Jacob had during his natural lifetime. Uh, So uh, it seems that what's being pointed out here is that God is reminding them in Malachi chapter 1, you are my people. I selected Jacob. All right, so that seems to be what he's pointing out here in this passage as well. And why is he doing it? Well, he's doing it because of verse 11. He says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. You see, with the Isaac and Ishmael analogy, a lot of us would look at the Ishmael thing and go, well, obviously, that was not right. That wasn't a good decision. Abraham didn't do the right thing. So, of course, Isaac, not Ishmael. But God goes even further, and he says, but what about the Jacob, not Esau? 
God, I selected Jacob before any of these guys did anything. Now, some people might be tempted to say, well, but, you know, God sees the end from the beginning, and he probably saw that Jacob would be awesome. Nope, not so much. That wasn't the story. He just, before they did anything, before they did good or bad, God made his selection. I am calling, I am choosing Jacob over Esau. I'm going to put my promise upon Jacob. This selection by God without the working of either one of them to do good or evil, this selection from God is there to preserve, verse 11, God's purpose of election. That's what he says. And all through the Bible, we see God doing this. The ancient rabbis would sometimes try to read into the extra-biblical life of Abraham. In other words, what was Abraham like before we read about him in the Bible? And there's a temptation to make him sound incredible. And that God looked upon the earth and he said, there's an incredible man, I choose him. But the Bible doesn't teach us that. The Bible shows us God seeing Abraham and calling him out of Ur of the Chaldees. We read in the New Testament of God walking in the flesh through the Galilee on the shore of Galilee and looking at a few guys, some of them who would fail very miserably and say, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We see Jesus saying words like this in Matthew 11, verse 27. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And we learn in Ephesians 1, verse 4, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And I'm sure for many of you, you look into your own testimony, your own life. I heard someone describe it once, and they said, it's like when you're, you know, before you are coming to, have come to Christ and before you die, before you're in the Lord's presence, it's like there's this sign over heaven that says, you know, whosoever will. And then you walk through that sign and you're in heaven and you turn around and this, you see the backside of that same sign and it says, all who I've chosen. And I've heard that before, but for me, I think about when I came to Christ and I, I can use that terminology, I believed in the Lord, I surrendered to the Lord, I trusted in the Lord. However, I, right in the midst of it, it did not feel as though I myself was looking at the God of the universe and from the goodness of my own heart making a decision. It felt like the hound of heaven, the Holy Spirit, was pursuing me, calling me, desiring me, wanting me. I felt like I couldn't get away with anything. And that he was drawing me to himself. And that's what Paul seems to be talking about here. A rejoicing over the purpose of election of God just deciding and longing and wanting and all of that. And this is, for us, the mystery of all mysteries, isn't it? You know, that somebody told Charles Spurgeon one time, I have a problem with that Esau I've hated portion. And he said, that's not the part I have a hard time with. I have a hard time with the Jacob I have loved section. I have a hard time understanding. God, why would you? And you want me. 
you want me. You, you've, you've called me. You've longed for me. So I don't know how this works. I'm not God, but he, he says this is, this is how it's worked in Israel. Then he goes on in verse 14. You know, because the question then is, well, if God does that, then is he unjust? He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God said this to Moses, by the way, after the people of Israel had completely rebelled and worshipped at the golden calf when Moses was up on the mountaintop. After all of that, God said, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, uh, it's not... It, it, it's all depending upon God. God's mercy and compassion, it, it stems not from our doing, our attractiveness, but it stems from his choice, his promise, his decision. This ought to make you, if you're a believer today, feel so incredibly secure. That's what we just sang about. But you might feel insecure about, well, but maybe, maybe I'm his because... I, I, was there some goodness? No, you should have a humble heart that says, no, this was God just deciding to extend his mercy upon me. Then Paul, in verse 17, he uses the illustration. He's gone to Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau. Here he speaks about Pharaoh. This is a stern and sober warning. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now again, I don't know exactly how this works. I do know that when I read the book of Exodus and I see what happened in Pharaoh's life, I see that God sent Moses, a messenger to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the most prominent leader in the world at that time. His fame and his power were known by everybody. And I know that God sent Moses and that Moses would say to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go that they might serve me. Now, when God told Moses to do that, God said to Moses, and Pharaoh is not going to let you go. That was his response. And for the first few requests that Moses made, it records in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his heart. In other words, in Exodus, it reads as Pharaoh doing the hardening. Then eventually, I think after the seventh time that Moses came in and said, let my people go, it then says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So I don't know if the way that it worked, at least in Pharaoh's life, and I don't know if this is a universal truth or not, but I don't know that if the way that it worked was that Pharaoh began the hardening process himself, and then God looked at Pharaoh's heart and says, I respect that. I respect this decision that you've made, and I will firm up the decision you've made. You've hardened your heart, and I will now harden and completely fix your heart in that direction. 
you've chosen this direction, I will fix your heart in that direction. So at the very least, I know we saw in Romans chapter 1 that we saw three different times, three levels where God gave them up. God gave them up. So here there's a hardening of the heart uh, of Pharaoh. This seems to be God's judicial act against this man. Now, I say that and I read that, and at the same time, I believe that as long as Pharaoh had breath in his lungs, he had the opportunity to repent of his sin and to believe in the God of Israel. I don't know how all these things work out, but this is what the scripture is teaching us. Then he goes on in verse 19, and the question would simply be, okay, well, if that's true, if God shows mercy to whomever he wills, then why does he still hold us responsible? So he says in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Don't you like how Paul just does this through his whole letter? He's like, I know what you're thinking. And he just says, this is what you're going to say. You're going to say, why then does God hold us responsible? Why is there such a thing as man's responsibility if he gives mercy to whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills? Who can resist his will is the question. Now, in a moment, when we get to chapter 10, Paul is going to answer this question in a different way than he answers it right here. In a moment, in Romans 10, he's going to say, well, just believe in the Lord. He's going to use phrases like, in Romans 10, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they would be saved. He's going to say, the word of faith is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. He's going to say, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. He's going to say, with the heart, one believes and is justified. Or with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, he's going to say, faith is not exclusive. It's available for all. But that's not the first way that Paul's going to answer this question. The first way is to just defend God's sovereign authority and right. Notice what he says in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? use what if god verse 22 desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called and not from the jews only but also from the gentiles what paul does here is he simply says to mankind, look, we don't get to call the shots here. We're like the clay, he's like the potter. Can the potter say to the clay, can the potter command the clay, can the potter say to the molder, why, or the, the clay say to the molder, why have you made me like this? This is, by the way, one of the attitudes that you'll see 
constantly pointed in God's direction. Why doesn't God just do this? Why doesn't God just do that? And here Paul is saying God is under no obligation to do as the clay determines. He is the potter and we are the clay. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God. His first move isn't to say just believe. His first man, uh, move is to defend the right of God to do whatever, however he determines to do it. And so this is like a humbling passage. In one sense, Paul is putting us in our place before the sovereign God of the universe. Now, I should point out to you in verse 22 and 23 that Paul is very careful in the way that he writes a couple of things. Notice it. He talks about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and then he talks about vessels of mercy which God has prepared beforehand for glory. And it's important to point that out because it seems like what he's saying is he doesn't attribute any credit to God for the preparation of vessels for destruction. The only vessels that he explicitly says God is involved in are the vessels that are prepared for glory. It's kind of like he's saying, hey, we do a great job all by ourselves preparing ourselves for destruction. But it's God who must rescue us and prepare us beforehand for glory. Now, in closing, Paul then quotes a few of the Old Testament prophets. Let's read it uh, together. He says of Hosea, he says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now this comes from, like Paul said, the prophet Hosea, who during the time of Israel's rebellion, uh, he had the prophet Hosea do some things that were you know, very different, uh, if you know the book of Hosea at all. But in the prophecy, he said, look, the people who right now are not behaving as my people, one day they will be my people again. But Paul is using the quote here to say uh, that there are Gentiles out there. I mean, as Paul wrote this letter, keep in mind, he's writing this letter probably from Corinth, in the midst of a Gentile church there, to a predominantly Gentile church in Rome. The gospel has advanced all the way to Rome without Paul even going there. This isn't him kind of looking into the future and saying, you know, someday the church is going to be predominantly Gentile. I don't know when, but someday. No, Paul already at his time of writing is saying, there were people who were not God's people. They didn't have the tabernacle. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have the law, the priesthood, the Messiah. They didn't have any of those things. They didn't have the Old Testament, the Bible. They didn't have any of that. They weren't God's people, and now they are God's people. And that's the reality that we're all rejoicing in this morning, a reality that we're sitting in this morning. We're sitting here in California, of all places. Uh, and many of us believers in Christ Jesus, and most of us Gentiles. And we're sitting here saying, I was not one of God's people, but now I've been placed 
into the program of God. Now I am one of his people. Then he says of Isaiah in verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And, verse 29, as Isaiah predicted, the Lord of hosts had not left us, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Here's what Paul's saying with these quotes. He's saying, look, even though God has a plan for the Gentiles, he still has a plan for his remnant physical Israel. And that's what we're going to read about in chapter 10 and especially in chapter 11. Paul is going to point us forward to God's plan for Israel. It's like he's paused what he's doing in physical Israel and will unpause at a specific moment in the future. But right now, he's working amongst the Gentile church. All right, so we read all of that. And probably if, for, if, if you're like me, after Every time I read Romans 9, I have more questions after it than before it. So you're probably a little bit like that, like, okay, man, how does this all work? And I don't know, okay, so don't ask me. <laughs> but I think what we've been seeing here, especially in verse 6, uh, verse six all the way to verse 29, is we've been seeing uh, a little glimpse into God's perspective from God's view. I think in verse 30, we now snap back into the human view. We've seen it from God's view. There's things like election and his choice and all of that. How does it work from our view, though? Well, here's what he says in verse 30. What shall we say then? Remember we were asking the question, did God's word fail? This is why I wanted to get us all the way to verse 30. Did God's word fail was the question of verse 6. He says, well, no, it's not that God's word failed. This is what he says. He says, this is what we should say. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. Gentiles who weren't even looking for it, didn't even want it. It wasn't even on their radar. Gentiles who did not look attained. They didn't work for it. They didn't pursue it. And what they attained, he says, is that is a righteousness that is by faith, imputed, given, deposited, received. We receive the righteousness of God it's by simple faith in Jesus. But, this is also what we say, verse 31, that Israel, what happened to them? Did God's promise fail? No, he says, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Now, a lot of times when we read of the giving of the law in the Old Testament, a lot of Christians read it negatively, partly because of what Paul is saying here. Because we think that the law was like this thing that God gave to say, keep this and you'll have my covenant. Keep this and you'll be saved. That's not the case. God saved them. He redeemed them. He pulled them out of Egypt. He bought them with the blood of the Passover lamb, which foreshadowed the blood of his own son. They were his. The problem is, after that, they were his. He gave them the law to govern them, to live by. But over time, the majority began to think, if we keep the law, 
That's how we'll get righteousness. Not it's blood. It's blood. It's sacrifice. There's someone coming who will have to die for us and save us. There's substitution. God must forgive us. They thought the law, the keeping of it, could actually save them. That was where the failure was found. It's a temptation that so many of us would have given into uh, right along with the rest of the nation of Israel. And so Paul is saying that's where things broke down. Physical Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness and did not succeed in reaching it. Why? Verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. This is Jesus. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, that's the stone as he's quoting from Isaiah, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And this, by the way, is just so so often the big problem that many people who frequent a church kind of get inside their hearts. If I take the commands and I try to do the commands and I do them well enough, then God will give me his approval. God will give me his righteousness then I'm good enough to be received by him forever. And what we're learning here is that is never the case. Yes, you want to pursue his word. You want to obey his word, but in a different way than by thinking you can earn righteousness, but by faith, by faith. And to have your faith, your trust, your confidence in the living God. So Paul's conclusion was really simple. God's word and promise toward Israel had not failed. They had a privileged position before God, but they became infatuated with the idea that law-keeping could earn them the righteousness of God. So for me, you know, like I said, Romans 9, it's one of those passages I just laugh when I get to it in Bible teaching. I just go, okay, here we go. This is a hard one. Hard for me to understand. Hard for me to communicate, teach, all of that. Uh, But for me, when I get to a passage that tells us we need to repent, we need to believe, and we are responsible, I preach that. And when I get to a passage that tells me that God chooses and that he calls, I preach that. And I don't know how they work together, and there's a reason I don't know, because I'm human. God sees the end from the beginning. I mean, just think about it. God knows exactly what's going to happen to you tomorrow. He's are, it's, it's not like he's waiting for it to happen. You know, like, what's going to happen tomorrow? That's not, it. That's not how God lives. He's above our time. He's above space. He's above all of that. He sees it all. A day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And we're like, yeah. No, not yeah. You don't, we, don't, we don't know. We don't know what that's like. So like in the midst of his nature, of course there's going to be these things that are true about him and the way he operates that are going to be in one sense just mysterious to us. And I don't know about you, but I just don't want to worship a God who isn't a mystery. 
that big, that powerful, that wonderful, that beautiful. So there we have it, Romans 9. Lord, we thank you so much for your word today. We want to grow, Lord, in it. We want, Lord, to be more impressed with you and your nature and your character. And Father, if there be in us any heart or any desire or any line of thinking that would say, you, God, must act like this, Lord, purge it from our mind. Your ways are not our ways. You are so high above us. And so, Lord, in your perfect judgment and decision-making and pure and incredible love, we just look to the cross of Christ and we rejoice at who you are. We see your nature there in that cross and we just run to you. Wrap us, Father, with your arms of love and teach us. Thank you, Lord. And so we pray that you'd continue to help us. And Father, I'm looking forward to that day when the promises that you've given to this nation, the nation of Israel, I'm looking forward, Father, to the moment when they will come to pass and your kingdom will come and you will rule with a rod of iron and every knee will bow and tongue confess. I'm looking forward, Lord, to that moment. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.